By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Hello, everyone. Uh, it's a tough time to be a cyber bro at the moment. Uh, about a year after the spectacular collapse of FTX, and the subsequent trial and conviction of Sam Bankman-Fried this year, Binance chief Shang Peng Zhao has been forced to step down while his firm has paid a settlement of over $4 billion to the US authorities. So is this the cyber bubble bursting? Or is there still hope that the underlying innovations that fed cyber and are still going on in digital finance are going to make our lives better? That's what we're going to cover today on Moody's Talks The Big Picture. My name's Colin Ellis, I'm Moody's Global Credit Strategist, and I am delighted to be joined today by one of our experts from our Decentralized Finance and Digital Assets Group, uh, Cristiano Ventricelli. Uh, Cristiano, thank you for joining me. Hi, Colin. Thanks for having me. So um, let's start with the basics, uh, I guess, just to catch up on some of the news. Um, what's going on with Binance? And, you know, we've seen this enforcement action. It's a massive fine. Could you tell us a bit more about it and maybe how it's different from what we've seen in the past? Indeed, the Binance enforcement action is a little different from what we are seeing uh, for other cryptocurrency exchanges because if we think about Coinbase and Kraken, which are the main two exchanges in the US, they have been charged by the SEC for operating as unregistered security exchanges, whereas Binance enforcement action involves uh, several charges like failure to implement anti-money laundering policies, violation of US sanctions, violation of the Bank Secrecy Act, and failure to register as money service business. So we can see that um, it's a whole different thing, uh, and the sanctions and the, the, the kind of violation is quite different from what we are used to see for other exchanges when the SEC is involved. But just to come in on that point, the deal that Binance has made here is with different US authorities, um, like the Department of the Treasury, I think, uh, and the Justice Department. But it's not with the SEC, right? There's still a separate SEC thing open about Binance. Um, the SEC has not been involved in the current settlement. However, it could be that the SEC will have his own lawsuit against Binance in the future. Um, and yeah, the two things could be interconnected, but uh, time will tell. Um, coming back to the fine, yes, it's uh, a pretty hefty fine, but we can put it into context by highlighting that Binance has facilitated $9 trillion trading volume in 2021 and $5 trillion in 2022. So, so as a share of their kind of total revenues or their total trading, $4 billion is a lot to you and me, um, but it's not, it's not that big to them. Is that the point? Definitely. Yes, absolutely. Okay. And, and, and did we kind of see this coming a bit in terms of the action and, and the fine, or is it a bit of a surprise? No, I mean, in the last few years, um, I mean, cryptocurrency exchanges around the world have had to deal with a number of enforcement actions, um, and some of them had to shut down. Some of them have been forced to pay uh, quite big fines too. Looking forward, one of the things that we could see from this enforcement action is, is that it's more likely that some exchanges will have to step up their compliance and risk management measures. 
to make sure uh, they satisfy regulators' expectations in the future. Um, another point that is worth mentioning is that Binance has not been shut down. Uh, it has been imposed a five-year monitorship by the Financial Crime Enforcement Network, which means that the disruption in the market will be uh, probably marginal because the biggest player in the market, which is Binance, is not shutting down. It's staying there. It's continuing operating. Uh, and so it will not close shops. And this, this means that uh, Binance will probably have the opportunity to make things right in the future thanks to this uh, five-year monitorship. Okay. I mean, that, that monitorship sounds quite intrusive uh, in, in terms of kind of regulators and the authorities taking a very close look at what you're doing on an ongoing basis. I mean, that that might be, yeah, that might have its own implications in terms of appetite for investment in the digital industry. Uh, but more broadly, you know, when, when you see things like this, when you saw FTX fail, when we've seen this settlement now, that can have an impact on sentiment, right? You know, how people feel about digital finance and crypto. So, so do, do you see any kind of implications, broader implications for crypto or digital finance from these kinds of events? Yes, let's, let's uh, divide the digital finance industry into two. So there is one part of digital finance industry, which is the part where institutional investors and and uh, financial institutions are operating and they are working on financial applications that leverage the power of distributed ledger technology. Uh, they are using distributed ledgers to create asset tokenization uh, and within these processes, the interaction with cryptocurrencies is uh, quite non-existent. So we will see this area being broadly unaffected. Um, at the same time, the part of digital finance that is dealing with the cryptocurrency industry could see some short-term decrease in liquidity uh, with a consequent spike in, uh, in volatility. But in the medium-long term, um, we expect this event to have uh, benefits in the sense that market participants will likely be more confident in the compliance practices that exchanges will have to adopt in order to meet regulators' expectations. Oh, okay, so so there's an element here of if regulators become more intrusive, if they force better behavior onto the crypto industry, that in turn builds a bit of confidence and makes investors more happy that this is a safe, a safer, <laughs> a safer place to go. Is, is that fair? Yeah, exactly. The point is that enforcement agencies have proven that there is no entity which is out of reach, right? Uh, which is something that uh, was previously taught by some market participants. And this is important because it means that no exchange and no service operator could be considered uh, safe from the reach of regulators. And this is a good thing because it enhances the confidence that investors might have into the ability of enforcement agencies to actually uh, punish bad actors and remove uh, bad actors from the industry. I mean, hopefully it's not just confidence, it's also actual actual kind of protection, you know, if the enforcement actions uh, and the mo things like the monitorship do change behaviour. So, so, no, that's definitely a good thing. M maybe if we focus on, you know, some of the underlying technologies here, because um, I I'm keen to get your take on what kind of impact we're already seeing or, or, or feeling from those. I mean, I, I, I remember seeing... Lots of presentations this year about how distributed ledger technology, DLT, was going to change our lives and it was going to make everything 
completely different in about two or three years. I'm pretty sure I saw presentations two or three years ago that said the same thing uh, in terms of these transformational effects coming through. Um, are we starting to see benefits from these new technologies already? Or, or is this the kind of regular story where there's a bit of over-optimism about how quickly we can reap benefits from new ideas and new tech? What we are seeing on the institutional space is that the number of transactions uh, executed on distributed ledgers is increasing, and they are ranging from digital bond transactions to tokenized funds and, and, and other instruments. So uh, the interest is definitely there, and it's not only a matter of experimentation. There are uh, real-world transactions with real money that have been executed so far. Um, one of the main advantages that digital finance brings to the table is that it improves the cost and operational efficiency for the counterparties that are involved in the transaction. It makes transaction faster and it gives uh, a broader access to uh, transaction participants on the on both ends of the market, so the supply and the demand side. Is that already happening? Are we already seeing those effects crystallize? Well, um, it's hard to quantify the benefits because, uh, I mean, the industry is still in the early days. Um, at the same time, we are seeing players like JP Morgan. I mean, JP Morgan has been published about that. And they've said that they expect uh, a $20 million saving on a $1 trillion volume in tokenized repo by the end of 2023. And the head of blockchain said, and I quote, it's not massive in the grand scheme of things, but it's not immaterial either. And I totally agree with this view. Uh, in fact, uh, this is exactly the point at which digital finance stands right now. Um, and yeah, you're right. Coming back to your initial point, benefits will take time to reach their full scale. And this is for uh, three main reasons. Uh, the first one is that technology has made significant progresses, but there are still some areas in which the level of security could be improved. And you can imagine that some participants in the digital finance space must bear risk uh, to interact with these technologies. And these risks might not be acceptable for many institutions. So that kind of security risk, that's at the moment, security is maybe not quite as good as traditional finance metrics? Is that what you're saying? Or is it not as good as we'd like it to be? Uh, there are certain transactions, and uh, we have uh, dealt with some of these transactions in Moody's, that have been uh, as secure because um, issuers and, and, and market participants that put in place guardrails that prevented this transaction from being uh, uh, subject to any kind of outage. At the same time, there are certain areas in digital finance where we are seeing a level of security that is not completely satisfactory. Uh, for instance, the smart contract industry is one of them. Another point that is worth mentioning is that from a regulatory standpoint, regulators around the world have done a great job and they have progressed and they have provided a much more comprehensive and well-rounded framework for certain aspects. But there are still some gray areas they need to be addressed. And many players in, in traditional finance, they prefer to wait on the sidelines until they get some regulatory clarity that provides them enough assurance to transition into digital finance uh, in, a, in a safe and sound way. Could you give an example of one or two of those gray areas maybe where, where a bit more detail, a bit more clarity would be helpful in terms of regulation? Yeah, well, for instance, one is uh, the regulation of stable coins. Um, it's not, I mean, there are some jurisdictions like uh, Europe, for instance, where things are advancing quite well. 
at the same time, there are some use cases and there are particular angles of the stablecoin business that have not been addressed yet. And also decentralized finance, for instance, it's, it's an area where regulators have been quite cautious for the time being. And we will see more progresses down the line, uh, but it will probably take some time. And, and, and also, last but not least, uh, when we think about asset tokenization, we think about uh, a digital representation of assets that exist already in traditional finance. But you have to have a way to purchase, to settle transactions with those assets. And in order to do that, in traditional finance, you use fiat currencies, whereas we don't have a counterparty of fiat currency, the digital world, that is a one-to-one -one correspondence in terms of security and reliability. So for the time being, stable coins are the main uh, item that you could use to settle transactions in, in digital markets. But at the same time, recent events have, have shown that stable coins are, uh, they could be unstable in certain circumstances. This is probably one of the reasons why central banks are so interested in creating their own digital currencies, right? As, as a means of settlement for these kinds of things. Exactly. So we see uh, central bank digital currencies and bank deposits that have been tokenized as two uh, forms of digital cash that could be better positioned than stablecoin to become the instrument of choice in the future. But their implementation will likely take some time. Okay. Still more to come here, more benefits to come down the line. I like that. M maybe to finish with then, just, just one kind of shorter term question. What do you think the biggest impact from decentralized finance is going to be on credit next year in 2024? Where are you expecting to see the most impact and most progress? Well, one trend that we are seeing in digital finance is that because of the uh, tight monetary policy and uh, higher for longer interest rate environment, investors are increasingly interested in uh, transposing traditional finance instruments that have become extremely interesting from a yield standpoint on distributed ledgers. So we are seeing a trend of tokenizing assets like U.S. Treasuries and money market funds that are um, that are the way to go for many investors in this in this period uh, that are looking for uh, safe yields and they are trying to take advantage of the uh, new monetary policy shift. Um, so this is one of the trends that we are seeing in in uh, in asset tokenization. Uh, on the one end, we are seeing the tokenization of public securities like uh, uh, U.S. treasuries, like ETFs and, and, and money market funds. But on the other end, we are also seeing an increasing interest in tokenizing private debt. Private debt, it's, uh, it's, a, new, it's a new beast for digital finance because it involves giving access to credit to a broad set of counterparties that didn't have access to credit so far. And you can imagine this trend having two main implications. The first one is that it provides, it could provide significant liquidity to issuers and instruments that you don't typically see uh, in, uh, in traditional finance. But at the same time, it creates risks because it could create an adverse selection mechanism for which issuers that come to digital finance to get funding are those that you would not like to finance in, in, uh, in the traditional markets. Okay, so it's Akalov's lemons problem all over again. If, if I can't get money the traditional way, maybe I go to the digital world and try and get in via tokenization. Excellent. Thank you very much, Cristiano. I think that chimes with a lot of the other work we've been doing on direct lending and private credit more broadly. But it's intriguing to hear that it's an area of focus in the digital world as well. 
Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. It's wonderful that we have experts like you around to help explain these things to me and to everybody else. But until next time, that's it for today. So again, I'm Colin Ellis, and this was Moody's Talks, The Big Picture. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.